Well, welcome to the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we are in chapter 18 this morning. As we get underway, though, I have an exciting announcement, which is this week, I traveled back in time. Yes, I entered a time warp. I went back to November 10th, 1969. Peace, daddy-o, right? So I went there, and the way I did that is I was sitting down with my granddaughter, Pepper, and uh, it was time for Pepper and Appa, because she calls me Appa. It was time for us to watch Elmo, because who doesn't love Elmo, right? So we're on the app. We're waiting for <laughs> Elmo, right, to come onto the screen, and we go into the PBS app, and I see that they have all of the seasons of Sesame Street. 52 seasons. Over 5,000 episodes, and I'm like, time to binge, right? So, so we went all the way back, and we watched episode one, season one of Sesame Street. It was like the coolest thing. I'm like, this existed before I existed. This is bizarre to me, right? So we're watching it. And there's all kinds of these great little lessons they do and everything else. And one of the most famous ones that they've ever kind of accomplished on Sesame Street, you might remember this one. It's the simple little song, Which of These Things is Not Like the Other? Which of these things just doesn't belong, right? That one. And, and so it's this whole comparative thing. So they show you like four different objects and you as a little kid are supposed to be like, number three is doesn't belong, right? Like that whole thing, right? And so they're, they're, they're doing different characters and so it might be Cookie Monster or whatever else. And I'm like, this is a great learning lesson. But before Cookie Monster was actually doing that game, Jesus was using this very mechanism as a teaching tool. Which of these things is not like the other? And in the Gospel of Luke now, for weeks, we've seen that kind of comparison, right? We've seen which of these things is not like the other, and it was a comparison between one outsider that was thankful versus nine insiders who were thankless. Or it was between a judge who was powerful and a widow who was powerless. Between a Pharisee who was confident in their abilities and a tax collector who was contrite in their merits. Between those who say, I want this life in this life and they lose this life, or those who say, I will let go of my life in this life to gain true life. See, what Jesus continues to do throughout his ministry, throughout his teaching, throughout his examples, throughout his interactions, is he keeps trying to help us see that, whoa, the conventions we use in this world, the ideals that we hold dear, the things that we tend to elevate, well, his kingdom's everything different from that. It's upside down, it's backwards, it's other, and he wants us to learn that lesson, that life is not about how good, mighty, great, or powerful we are, but rather how much we throw ourselves on the grace of God, how much we rely on him, we're dependent on him, we're broken before him, that that's the stuff of his kingdom, that's the stuff of the gospel, that's the stuff of the values of Jesus. And that theme, again, of kind of which of these things is not like the other will continue in another context, because Jesus is just doing these comparative studies, and he's looking at the difference between little babies and Mr. Big Bucks. Right? That's going to be our two comparisons this morning. And so, as we get ready to go into this little section of Luke, I want us all to have a moment uh, of just kind of personal, private silence to go to the Holy Spirit and say, what do you want me to learn? What are the things in my world that you want to address in me so that I can be more like you, Jesus? Or maybe you're somebody that's watching or you're here and you're like, I'm not a Christian, I don't follow Jesus. Maybe this is just you saying, you know, I'm going to take a moment to say, hey, God, if you're there and you want to do something with me, I want to be open to what you want to do. 
We just want to take a moment in the silence to do that, and then I'll go ahead and pray, and we'll jump right into our passage for today. Jesus, every one of us come before you this morning in a different space. For some of us, life is going really great. For some of us, life isn't so terrific. For some of us, we have burdens that are emotional or burdens that are tangible or burdens that are relational. For others of us, you know what? We're burdened by what we're seeing in Ukraine and we're burdened by what we're seeing in the posture of Russia and we're bothered by the events of our world and all the more it reminds us of a need for you. It reminds us of the need to be so utterly different than the ways of the world. If there's anything that I've thought about out of the news this week, it's how desperately your vision for the kingdom, your blessing of the nations, your flourishing for the world must be something that we hold dear and we throw ourselves into completely. So I pray that we will be students, but not just students who learn a lesson and have a little bit more working knowledge, but rather we be students who are apprentices that want to go live out what it is you have for us. May we welcome your calling. May we live out your calling because we so believe that your message, your way, will in fact change the world. And so Jesus, we ask for your guidance, for your care, for your tenderness toward us, and for your conviction to lay itself in our hearts. So we thank you for your goodness and your kindness toward us. In your name, amen. So starting in chapter 18, verse 15. It says, one day, some parents brought their little children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering Jesus. Doesn't that sound like a really nifty Christian person right there? Scolding parents for bringing babies to Jesus. Now, this is a familiar story to a lot of us, right? And you kind of know, like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're we're to be like little children. The little children come to Jesus. We get this whole thing. But here's the thing sometimes about familiar stories. Familiar stories can breed a certain level of assumption. In other words, we go, oh, I've heard this. I know this. I get the moral of the story. Let's move on to the next story. But I think sometimes that sense of familiarity will will cause us to have a slightly skewed perspective, and we want to revisit this story with some fresh eyes. So we can hopefully get the proper understanding of why this is coming up in the Gospel of Luke, why he decides to center on this particular occasion in the ministry of Jesus. And so to set the setting of this whole thing, here's something we have to understand. And that is the way our world sees sweet little babies and sweet little children and toddlers and everything else a little different than the way their world envisioned this right? Because for us, we go, oh, they're so cute. They're so sweet. They're so fun to play with. They're so fun to hold. And, and we see all this sentimental kind of stuff in there. But in their culture, children were, were had, you had them so they could eventually grow up and work the farm, help the family, till, till the fields, deal with whatever the family business was or whatever else. And so because you had limited food and you had limited ability for security, having a child was like this kind of long-term investment. And so when you had them, you just knew that it was going to be years before they could actually earn their keep. 
So you would have to feed them with your limited supplies. You would have to clothe them with your limited apparel. So all of it was a little bit more work. It was more effort. You knew that one day, after years and years and years, they could actually contribute, but until then, you just have to continue to make this investment and maintenance and care and everything else. And that was a hardship on families. In fact, so much of a hardship that the Roman Empire did not consider it murder or killing to leave your child to the elements because they were too burdensome for you to care for. That was true throughout the empire, and there was a certain level of that even within the Israelite culture in the first century. It's like children are a blessing because they grow up, but while they're children, they're a little bit difficult, which may give us a sense of then why the disciples are kind of blowing off the little children. They're like, they don't contribute. They don't make a difference. They're not here to really help out right now. Have them come in about 10 or 15 years, then we can put them to use. But right now, they're not useful to Jesus. And so they're probably thinking in their mind like, hey, listen, we're on our way to Jerusalem. We're following the Messiah. He's on a mission. When we get there, he's gonna take up a sword. He's gonna go against Rome. He's gonna crack some skulls. He's got a fight to pick, and these kids can't help with the fight. So go away. We got better things to do. But Jesus sees this, and he does have a fight to pick with his disciples. Because they're being kind of like the wicked stepmother of Disney movies, you know? They're just like, let the little kids go away, we don't want them. And Jesus is like, no, we do want them. What are you talking about? So it says, Jesus called for the children, and he said to his disciples, let the children come to me and don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God as a child will never enter into it. Now, when Jesus says this, there are actually two layers of what I'm going to call application or lesson to the story. I think one layer is a little bit opaque. You may not see it on the surface. And then the other layer is very overt and very much on the surface. Now, the opaque one, the reason we may not see it initially is because it's been a chapter since this topic has come up. But one of the things I love about Luke is that he will hit something and then it will go on for a while and it'll hit another thing and it's meant for the reader to be like, oh wait, this reminds me of something we saw before. And what we saw before in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus tells a story where he's like, listen disciples, listen followers of mine. You want to make sure you conduct your lives in such a way that you don't do things that causes little ones to stumble and leave the faith. Don't forget the little ones. Don't forget the babes in me. Don't do things that either turns them off and they leave the faith or turns them off and they never want to enter the faith. Don't forget the little ones when it comes to the kingdom. Now there, the little ones were those who were new to the faith, those who were baby Christians, maybe those who were investigating the things of Jesus, whatever it was. But it gives this warning about that, and if you cause people to walk away from the faith or reject the faith by what you do, that's like having a millstone tied around your neck, and you should be thrown into the sea for that, like it was a really sharp warning. And so the fact that the theme of a little one comes up again or a little child comes up again, the reader of Luke should be like, oh, that's right. I got to make sure I don't forget that because it's easy to forget that because for the disciples, it was just a couple of weeks ago and now they're tossing little kids to the side. She's like, whoa, wait, I just, we just talked about this. But then there's this deeper element to the story as far as an overt lesson. And the lesson is those who enter into this thing called the kingdom of Jesus and, and those who remain in this thing called the kingdom of Jesus need to come as little children, as little children. But the question is, 
what exactly is a little child? Now, I have some pictures of little children. Ah, yes, these are my grandkids. So this is Pepper, and Pepper is going to be two in just a couple of weeks. And this is Ezrin, and he was born on Christmas Day. So, different age brackets of kids, right? And what we tend to do when we hear this story about let the little children come, and we need to be like little children to enter into the kingdom, we start picturing, well, what are the traits of little children? And so I think about it with Pepper when I'm hanging out with her. Like, Pepper is super, like, sweet and huggy. Even yesterday, she came up to me, and she gave me this big hug, and she's like, I love you, Appa. I love you, Appa. Right? She's just starting to put together sentences. She's kind. She's funny. She squinches up her face and smiles and laughs and just does these really cute things, right? And we're like, well, that's the way we're meant to be like little kids. Like, this uh, sense of kindness and trust and love. I mean, like, Pepper will jump off the couch to me, just trusting me to catch her. And so we go, that's how we're to be like little kids, right? Trusting, loving, kind, compassionate, caring. Can I tell you something else about Pepper? You know, right? She can be self-interested. She can be difficult. She can be obstinate. When she runs down the hall and daddy says, time to go to bed. No, 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 no! And when she's screaming, Appa, Appa, save me from dad! That's what she's screaming, right? So she can be like that. There was something that happened just the other day where, where my wife, Ellen, was holding Ezrin. And Pepper was on the couch with her mom. And under her breath to her mom, she's like, and my wife, Pepper calls my wife Maymay. So she goes, Maymay put baby brother down. <laughs> Maymay hold Pepper, right? Like, like, like reprobate. <laughs> like, anybody wants to know if we're born sinful, watch a two-year-old for about five minutes and you'll find out. There can be all kinds of self-interest in there, right? So is Jesus really meaning to communicate to us that we all need to be like little toddlers to enter the kingdom? I hope not. It's interesting, in the Gospel of Luke, it's written in the Greek language, and the Greek language that is used is not, the, the, the word that's used there is not what we use or what they use for like toddlers or little kids. It's actually for Ezrin's. It's infant. It's the word infant. Now, what is it that Ezrin brings to the table? If you're making this comparison to how we enter the kingdom of God like a little infant, what does an infant bring? Nothing. Zero. Ezrin is utterly helpless, completely dependent. I don't know anything about Ezra's personality just yet. There's, he's such an infant. I, have, I haven't learned his likes and dislikes. I haven't had the opportunity to see what I would consider to be selfish behavior. I see reflex of hunger and sleep, but he's just a helpless, helpless little person. And that's sort of the lesson that Jesus is trying to get at here. If we're going to be like little children entering into the kingdom... It means we don't come before God and we say, here's my merits, here's my goodness, here's my uprightness, here's my knowledge, here's the information I know, here's my insights, here's my accuracies in life. We don't come with any of that. No, we come as an infant that says, you know what? I accept that I'm small and weak and dependent and unable and utterly, totally helpless. See, the only way anybody enters into the kingdom, anybody who's saved by God, anybody who is heaven-bound, whatever way we want to use the terminology, it's total helplessness. 
the utter awareness that, you know what, I rely solely on the grace of God to rescue me, and from that, I exude the grace of God to others because I know I am rescued only by grace. Not my works, not my merits, not my acuity, his grace. I'm rescued by his grace. That's the idea. And so weirdly, it's not just that we need to be baby or baby-ish to enter into the kingdom and be Christians. We need to sort of remain baby-ish as well. That doesn't mean immature, by the way. I don't want us to think, oh, so I'm supposed to be immature. No, but we're meant to have this attitude and disposition of an infant. Every day, God, I am helpless. Every day, God, it's your grace. Every day, God, you're the one that rescues. You're the one that secures. You're the one that carries me on to completion. You're the one that one day will make me wake up and see your presence. It's all you. God saves sinners. Sinners don't save themselves. Sinners don't do some of the work to be saved by God. God saves sinners. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Be like the little ones. Humble, dependent, and marked by God's amazing grace. Now, that concept... That idea is going to be tough for the comparative person in the story, right? So Jesus has little babies coming. He says, yes, yes, this is what we all need to learn about the kingdom. In contrast to now a young man who comes from the exact opposite end of the social spectrum. Somebody who comes with all the capability, all of the power, all of the merits that they can bring to the feet of Jesus. Right? So we hear the song, which of these things is not like the other? Well, here's what's not like a baby. One day a religious leader asked Jesus this question. Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? What should I do? Now, what's interesting about this, we call this person the rich young ruler. Which is interesting because no one gospel gives him that label. So Matthew says he's young. Luke says he's a ruler or a leader. All three do say he's rich, right? But we take all of that, make a composite, we go, this is a rich young ruler. And so in his world, part of what we have to understand is that we, again, make assumptions of the person and we forget the context of their world. But here's the deal with this young man. He is wealthy and he has power. Right? He's a religious leader, it seems. And in that context, that would be a person that everybody would look at and say, if anybody's saved, that guy's saved. That guy is a godly, godly man because he's wealthy. And Deuteronomy 28 says, God provides you with wealth if you're godly. And so they, we've looked at that in Luke before. They're going to look at that guy and be like, he's got wealth. God has clearly blessed him. And he's a religious leader. So God has clearly elevated him. And he's young, which means he's ahead of the curve. Right? So for all of the outside trappings of the religious system, they're looking at this young man and saying, if anybody's in, he's in. We should be benchmarking our life against him because that guy's got it figured out. Clearly, God is on his side and using him for great things outside of due season. Early developer, right? That's kind of the attitude that would be here. And this guy, there's something interesting to me about him, which is he's, he's still searching for more. That's what's remarkable. So he would also probably look and say, yes, God has blessed me with wealth. Yes, God has given me the ability to be a leader but boy, I feel like maybe there's more I should do. So he's coming to Jesus. And he's like, what am I lacking? What am I missing? What next step do I need to take? 
And where oftentimes religion was setting Jesus up for failure, it does not seem that this individual was trying to set Jesus up. In fact, in Mark, it says he ran to Jesus and knelt before him and then asked the question. So there's tons of sincerity in this man's quest. But in this too, he is sincerely flawed in the way he poses the question. Because what does he ask? And I want you to listen closely. He says, what must I do to inherit? What must I do to inherit? Here's why this is flawed. There are some of you in this room, I'm sure, that at some point had a parent or a grandparent, somebody in your family that passed, and they left you an inheritance. Here's my question. What did you do to receive that inheritance. See, that's not how an inheritance works. It's not how it functions. What you did is you were lucky enough to be born into a certain kind of family that had somebody that passed and thought, why not? They're my kid. You did nothing. They did it for you, but you did nothing to earn an inheritance. Inheritance isn't earned. It is what? Gifted by grace. It's just a free gift. You don't do anything anything for it. So the fact that this guy that is in an inheritance system understands how this work works where good Jewish parents leave things to their good Jewish kids, not because their kids are good Jewish kids, just because that's what you do. Why is this guy asking what does he need to do to get an inheritance? This is already kind of a flawed concept, right? That's the brokenness of it. And so he just wants to kind of figure this out, right? Like, what's the thing that's missing? But in this, we see even a deeper flaw in his life that's going to be addressed. Jesus responds to him after getting posed this question. He says, well, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. And Jesus isn't trying to say that he isn't good. He's trying to point this man in the direction of God, so that's what he's doing. He says, but to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. And you must honor your father and your mother. If you look at that list, Jesus lists all good things. And all those things would demonstrate worthy character. And if we go a step further, honestly, when you look at all of those things, they're actually doable types of things. You can achieve that list. I mean, outside of the honor your father and mother, which can get a little murky sometimes, I get that. Especially for adults, right? When you're an adult trying to honor your father and mother and you may see the world in different ways, that can be a little challenging. But, but overall, I'm sure this guy is listening to this list and going, murder, yeah, I can stay away from that. Adultery, I can forgo that. Perjury, don't have to do that. Like, honestly, he's looking at this going, if this is the list, I'm feeling pretty good. Now, when Jesus gives this list, this is five of the top 10, Right? So there are 613 laws total in the Old Testament. Those all get rolled into 10 big ones. We call them the Ten Commandments. These are five of the 10. And when Jesus gives this list, it's like shorthand. So he's like looking at this guy going, you know, the ones from Moses, the ones on the big stones, you know, that you all learn, those top 10, here's five of them. You get the idea. If you do that, man, now we're going the right direction. But then that raises kind of a big question. Is Jesus, in fact, saying, if you just do the Ten Commandments, that that's enough to earn your inheritance? 
that being a little child isn't about helplessness, but rather it's about making sure you can get at least these things tacked down, and if you can, then man, heaven is going to be in store for you. Well, I'm sure this guy's listening, and he's thinking, if that's it, just the 10, man, I got this thing nailed. I'm all in, right? So he's pretty stoked. Verse 21, the man replied, I've obeyed all of these commandments since I was young. In the Jewish tradition, what he was saying is, I'm bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah means son of the commandments. So he says, I'm bar mitzvah. I do these. I follow these. The top 10, that's my jam right there. I'm solid on all of these things. And I want to be clear about the 10 commandments. They're really not that hard. Right? Some assumptions that people make that are in the 10 commandments that aren't. The Ten Commandments do not command you to love your enemy. It's not there. In fact, the Ten Commandments don't call you to love your neighbor, technically. There's no sense of loving your neighbor there. They don't even call you to love God, technically. Most of the Ten Commandments are, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. Honor your father and mother and keep the Sabbath. They're like the two positives. Everything else is kind of like, just don't be a dumb person. That's kind of it. And if you reduce that down, man, that, that's kind of easy. Like, I've read the Old Testament a lot, and of the 613 laws, there are laws way tougher than the 10. Like, almost everything in Leviticus. I like my seafood too much, all right? So, so there's a lot of tough stuff in there, but the 10, not bad, right? But there is one in the 10 that is a little pesky if you boil it down. In fact, we see this in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. You see the list of the Ten Commandments, and they both start with the same opener. In Deuteronomy 5, we see the top of the list when it says, you must not have any other God but me. And you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything that is in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I do not tolerate your affections for any other God. Now I'm sure this young man, when he's sitting there and he's rifling through his mind, okay, Jesus has listed five of the ten. I'm going to walk through the ten. Number one and number two, he's thinking, that one I really got down pat. Like I, I, I've got that one nailed. Because I only worship the one true God, Yahweh. And I oppose all idols and all other religions and all other gods. I am not guilty of one or two. I'm not guilty of any of the ten, is what he's thinking. So when Jesus asks the question and then makes the statement and the guy comes back and says, man, I've done all of these since my youth, what he's assuming is just a very broad, top-level interpretation of this. And yet Jesus wants to dig deeper to what idols can be or what idols are in our lives. See, idols, these images of false gods, are pretty much anything that we place our faith or our trust in. Right? Anything we put our faith or our trust in or, or anything where we go, my safety or my security rests in that thing. Yeah, God is good, but that thing is a little better. That's gonna be an idol. An idol is anything where I go, you know what? If I don't have it, I'm gonna have great fear. Or if I do have it, I'm gonna have great joy. That's the essence of an idol. So don't think of an idol as some trinket you put on a shelf and you pray to three times a day and you burn an incense to. That's not an idol. An idol is an ideological concept behind that illustration that says, again, if this is in my life, I'm good. If it's not in my life, I'm at risk. 
right? So, so Jesus is now probing and digging a little deeper into this man's life. And it's interesting because if we were to look at all the idols that are in our world, all the ways that we can bow down to something to be our security, our safety, our provi- provision, whatever else, one of the big contenders, it's money, right? Money is the contender against God. In fact, Jesus said this earlier in Luke when he said, no one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Now, I think we're a little bit more aware of the problems here, but again, you've got to go back to their setting. Their setting was, if you had money, it showed your fidelity and that you were blessed of God. And now Jesus is stepping in and saying, or you trusted and it shows that you are cursed of God. Big disrupt, right? So, so now this whole thing is getting kind of concentrated and a little bit challenging. Now at this point, this man's thinking, I'm good, I'm solid, I've got it, Big Ten, I own these, bar mitzvah, that's who I am. But when Jesus heard his answer, Mark says he felt genuine love for him. Like Jesus' heart broke for this young man. And then he said to him, this one thing that you haven't done, sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. It seems that Jesus knows the idol of this man's heart. And out of love, not out of scolding, not out of condemnation, out of love. He wants to free the man from his idol because he knows idols only take you so far, but they're not going to pay off in the end. So he wants to free him from his idol and and give him a better sense of security and safety than the places that he's been putting his life. And, And so he says, sell everything to possess even more, right? Become a powerless ruler, Join the ranks of the little children. He says, if anything, become helpless by helping the helpless and give it all to them. He says, then if you do that, then you're going to truly be rich, and in that you are truly ready to follow me. Now, if we're honest about this passage, what we'll notice is that Jesus doesn't ask this of everybody who comes in his presence or asks him a question. This isn't always the standard. It just seems that he knows something that's going on in this person's heart, and so he brings this up. But I do believe that the story is kind of a proxy story for us, where we begin to look at our own lives, measure our own heart, think about what we place our greatest faith and security in, right? Or or what things drive our fears and our wants and our desires and our sense of security, Do we trust Jesus above all else? Do we advance kingdom above all else? Or are there idols that we do hold to? Idols that are earthly idols. Idols that are worldly things. Idols that we trust more than other things to be our functional saviors. Things where you say, I need that in my life so I can have my earthly heaven. If not, I'll be stuck in worldly hell. Like Those are the idols that we can all fall victim to. The Pharisee last week, he was trusting in his piety, but now the religious leader this week, he's trusting in his money. Therefore, when Jesus says, hey, you gotta do this, you gotta let this go, you gotta slay the idol in your heart. It says in verse 23, when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. And Mark, it says his face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. I appreciate this because it shows that there was pressure 
that there was grief, that there was a sense of torn spirit in him. He didn't just be like, well, Jesus, that's stupid. Pound sand. I'm rich. I'm out of here. He doesn't do that. No, there's a sense of like, oh, man, I, 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 what do I need to do? He told me what I need to do. I don't, I don't know what I, I I'm just going to walk. Now, I want to be clear. I think sometimes when we think about like money as an idol in the New Testament, we tend to run to this place that says, how sad that the, the guy struggled with greed. He was just greedy. He had a lot of possessions he didn't want to give him up. That's a greed problem. I don't think that's true. I've tried to process a lot, process a lot like, like why is it that Jesus is like, money is the biggest challenger to God? Is it really just that we're greedy? I mean, there's some people that are greedy. But I think most of us go, I'm not greedy. And I would agree. I think why we tend to lock on to money is not greed. I think it's the things that money can provide. In other words, we go, money can provide safety. It can provide security, right? It's something I can put some level of tangible trust in to deal with my problems or create some solutions. That's why it has such a pull. I mean, think about even the words that we use to describe money. You take your money, you put it in what? A savings account. Saves saves you when you need it. Or what do we call money sometimes? Securities. Why? It's going to give you security. Really fancy word we use is sometimes we're going to put it in a trust because I can trust it to be there when I need it. So the very words we use to describe our money are words we're supposed to use to describe where we put our, our sense of trust, our sense of security, our sense of saving Savior in God. Like, all of that is there. Like, we've literally decided to label money things that are reserved for God. So it's no wonder to me that Jesus is bringing this to the, to the table and to the forefront of this man's life. He's like, yeah, you got to figure out who your God is. See, when we have zero, when we're completely broke, you have no choice but to trust God. But when you have, when I have, well, that's when we're tempted to be like, well, I need a menagerie of idols. You know, I need a little temple of idols, and Jesus is in there, and God is in there, and they're really important, but I also tend to get all freaked out if I don't have money, and I put my faith in having money, and, and so I have God and money, and I'm trying to get them to cohabitate together, and Jesus is like, it doesn't work that way. Because you're going to love one and scorn the other. You just can't juggle those things. And that was true of this young man as well. From this, in verse 24, Jesus said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when those who heard him say this, they said, Well, then who can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible for people is possible with God. So, a couple of things about this. First of all, why are the disciples shocked by this? Well, because in their mind, the rich young ruler was more godly than them. God had shown him favor. God had blessed them according to Deuteronomy 28. The guy had power. He had money. He was a better, quote, believer in God than they thought they were. So if that guy's not in, who has a chance and so then Jesus uses that opportunity to do an illustration. And so he uses the illustration of a needle and an eyelet in the needle and then a camel. And we read this so serious, but I think this is like Jesus' like deaf comedy jam scene, right? So he's like, it would be like a camel 
going through the eye of a needle. Ha ha! Right? Like, it's so dumb. It's like it won't fit. It's like, well, no, we just got to push really hard. If we push really hard, it'll fit. Kind of. If I keep one eye closed, I can kind of work it around. Right? Like, it's, it's dumb. And he knows it's dumb. That's the point. Right? Nobody can do it. Nobody can enter. And this brings me back to the point of the beginning. How are you rescued? How are you saved? What do you bring to the table? What is your merit? What can you brag about? What, you, what can you show as your list of accomplishments to say, this is why I should be saved? You bring nothing but helplessness. For anybody to get in, the godliest would be the rich to them, and they can't get in. So what's left for everybody else? Who gets in? Who can be saved? You want to know the answer? Jesus says, I'll tell you, little babies, their helplessness, that's how. Or maybe it is a tax collector that's just beating their breast in contrition. Or, or, or maybe, maybe it is a, 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 a woman that has been a prostitute and is just broken at the feet of Jesus, weeping and wiping his feet with her tears. Or it's a desperate dad that says, I believe, but I really don't believe. Help me. Or a woman caught in adultery and she's thrown into the dirt and between her and a mob is Jesus saying, I don't condemn her and who are you to condemn her either? Right? The utter helplessness of story after story after story after story is a testimony to how is this possible to be saved? And the answer is only God. That's why I said at the beginning, only God saves. It's one of the most uncomfortable things that we as human beings have to embrace. Because we want to say, no, I bear some of the responsibility. I do some things. I bring something to the saving table. And he's like, it's not how it works again. Your wealth won't rescue you. Your goodness won't rescue you. Your in tuneness with everything that you conceive of as godly won't rescue you. Only God will rescue. Only grace can save so it's all about just utter surrender utter surrender so what does peter say to this verse 28 he said we've left our home to follow you and jesus says yes yes you have and i assure you that everyone who has given up house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of god will be repaid many times over in this life and will have eternal life in the world to come Here's what's great about this. We could read that story about the rich young ruler and Jesus' conclusion and the who gets saved and we go, nobody. Nobody can be saved then. But Peter rolls in and does us a favor. He's like, but Lord, we, we, we kind of did that, didn't we? And Jesus graciously says, yes, you did. You, you, you're helpless before me. You actually have taken me at my word and you're just letting me have your life. Absolutely, Peter, spot on. You did that. You, you've left things for me. You're helpless before me, dependent on me. And so from that, because you've denied self, taken up your cross, follow me, our reading this morning, we've let go of our life to lose it instead of holding onto this life to try to create real life. Jesus says, because that's happened, I'm gonna take care of you. I'm going to legitimately take care of you. And what I love about what he says here is I'm going to take care of you in this life and in the life to come. Do you see that? He's like, in this life, I will take care of you, not by giving you all your wants, all your desires, every dream. That's not his point, but his point is this, Philippians 4. 
if you trust me, I will give you contentment in all things. Remember that with Paul? He's like, I've learned to be content with much or nothing. What was the source of his strength? He says, it's Christ who gives me strength. So Jesus is like, I will provide for you in this life everything you need, which mostly what we need is contentment. (laughs) More than stuff, we need contentment. He's like, so I will provide for you. I will provide for you in the, the family of faith. I will provide for you in the context of fellow Christians. I will provide for you. But then he also says, and in the life to come, I will reward you. It's the ultimate reminder to all of us that our mission and calling in life is not to be more tenacious, more intelligent, more aware, more whatever. It's, it's to be helpless. It's to be humble. It's to be dependent. It's to be moved by grace and from that to be an ambassador of the same grace that rescued us. And when we do that, that's when the world goes, oh, that's what little babies entering the kingdom is all about. Helpless, dependent, and trusting in their God. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you make us uncomfortable. We thank you that you are constantly giving us these comparisons, and in that, you are challenging us to rely more on you, to seek your spirit more, for your spirit to teach us, for your spirit to empower us, for your spirit to produce his fruit through us. I think so often, we think we just have to work harder as your followers, be more tenacious as your followers. In other words, we need our strength to carry us through on our Christian fidelity, as opposed to we need to surrender to you, seek your spirit to do his life and work through us, as a true act of fidelity. So help us to understand what that looks like, to let go of the baggage, the works, whatever it is that we sometimes put in the way, and instead to just throw ourselves before you and your grace. Everything we try to do is impossible. Only with you is anything possible. Help us to remember that in your good name. Amen. Man, I don't know about you, but do you ever, uh, I feel like we get to these times and after the message and it's kind of like, okay, church is done. I've been thinking about this.